Imagine for a second that you're a young immigrant, lured to a foreign land with hopes of creating a better life for yourself and your family. Upon arrival, however, things don't turn out quite like you dreamed, and those in power decide to take everything from you that you hold dear. Your land is stolen, your brother murdered by so-called vigilantes without benefit of a trial, and you yourself tied up, horse-whipped, and forced to watch your beautiful wife beaten and raped. Raped to the point that she would die in your arms shortly thereafter. Sounds like a nightmare. I imagine most of us under similar circumstances would be looking for revenge. And according to legend, vengeance is exactly what the fabled bandit Joaquin Marietta exacted. Story goes that he waited till nightfall, slid into the camp of his tormentors, dressed all in black. Dispatched one of them with a blade, silently chopping up the body and leaving the dismembered limbs scattered around camp to be found in the morning. And the next night he repeated this action. And again, the night after that. Once Joaquin's immediate thirst for retribution was satisfied, he moved on to other such men the type who preyed upon his people. He soon formed a group of like-minded compadres, dubbed bandits, who dedicated their lives to protecting the innocent, robbing from the rich and righting various wrongs. A compelling story that is said to have been the real-life inspiration behind Zorro, possibly even Batman, a tale found repeated all over the World Wide Web. The only problem is, you already know what I'm going to say, it's mostly not true. Ugh, I know! Trust me, I wanted this one to be legit. Nearly every episode towards the end, I'll ask for topic recommendations. Anyone you'd like to hear covered on this podcast, email me and let me know. And since the very beginning, the name Joaquin Marietta has flooded my inbox. Even now, at least a couple of times a month, I'll get messages saying I need to cover this guy. And full disclosure, I've been putting it off. Historian Susan Lee Johnson summed it up best when she wrote, quote, so many tales have grown around Marietta that it's hard to disentangle the fabulous from the factual. End quote. And hard is an understatement. I knew I'd have my work cut out for me with Marietta, but damn it, I'm a man of the people and I aim to please, so here we are. Who was Joaquin Marietta? I mean, who was he really? Why is there so much misinformation about the man? Was he a freedom fighter, a righteous avenger of injustice? or simply a bloodthirsty bandit who preyed upon the weak. How badly will I butcher any Spanish names that I attempt to pronounce? We're going deep into the heart of California on this one in an attempt to hopefully set the record straight. Me llamo es Yash and estás escuchando the Wild West Extravaganza. The problem with separating fact from fiction when it comes to Joaquin Marietta mostly originates with one man, a guy by the name of John Roland Ridge. A member of the Cherokee Nation, Ridge went on a lamb in 1849 after killing a man in, I believe, Arkansas. Hit out in the California gold fields and tried his hand at mining. Didn't suit him, so he started writing poetry, essays, and eventually, novels. Matter of fact, Ridge is considered by many as America's first indigenous novelist. And one of his books, his first and probably his most popular, was titled The Life and Adventures of Joaquin Marietta, the Celebrated California Bandit, published in 1854, a year after the notorious outlaw's alleged death. The book is still available on Amazon, and the blurb in one edition reads, in part, as follows, quote, The first novel to feature a Mexican-American hero, an adventure tale about Mexicans rising up against U.S. rule in California based on the real-life bandit who inspired the creation of Zorro, the Lone Ranger, and Batman. The life and adventures of Joaquin Murrieta tells the story of gold rush era Mexican immigrant Joaquin Murrieta, whose efforts to find fortune and happiness are thwarted by white settlers who murder his family and drive him off his land. In retaliation, Murrieta organizes a band of more than 2,000 outlaws, including the sadistic Three-Finger Jack, who take revenge by murdering, stealing horses, and robbing miners, all with the ultimate goal of reconquering California. End quote. Now, Mr. Ridge lived in California at the time that Marietta was active. He likely heard many historian rumor about the bandit and used newspaper articles as well as his own writer's imagination to spice things up. I mean, you don't have to be no genius to deduce there weren't no gangs consistent of 2,000 outlaws. And following the publication of his novel, Ridge had plenty of help making things even spicier. And just a few years after its release, The Life and Adventures of Joaquin Marietta was plagiarized by the California Police Gazette with a different title and several editorial changes. 
It was in this version that Joaquin's wife was killed after being violated. This appropriation was soon translated to Spanish, and in no time flat, it became quite the bestseller in Spain, where it was plagiarized yet again by the dadgum French. From there, the novel was translated back into Spanish and distributed in Chile, where it became so popular that the Chileans actually erected a statue dedicated to this quote-unquote brave fighter of injustice. Keep in mind that each time this son of a bitch is copied, it's also somewhat altered, like a big game of telephone. The Spanish then copied the Chilean version, again, this time calling it El Caballero Chiliano, before the Mexicans created their own version, finally turning Marietta back into a Mexican. There were poems, songs, even dime novels dedicated to the now mythical bandit. Toss in the fact that there were other criminals in the same region at the same time who were also named Joaquin, and you got yourself a legend. A legend that doesn't necessarily resemble the man on whom it was originally based. Even a legit historian got in on the charade. Kind of. Herbert Howe Bancroft used Ridge's third edition of The Life and Adventures of Joaquin Marietta as a primary source when he wrote his History of California. Or at least somebody did. After Bancroft's death, it was determined that much of his work had, in fact, been written by somebody else. According to the Salt Lake Tribune in 1893, Bancroft was a, quote, purloiner of other people's brains. When it comes to history, facts do matter. Believe it or not, I never start off one of these episodes looking to debunk a legend. My only goal is to tell the story as accurately as possible and hopefully in an entertaining manner. But if there's one thing I've learned when it comes to Old West history, it's that the legends oftentimes rarely line up with the truth. But I'm getting ahead of myself. As usual, to understand our subject, Joaquin Murrieta, we gotta take a look at where he came from and the environment that helped forge him. As you probably already know, California was a territory of Spain and then Mexico before finally being ceded to the United States in 1848 following the Mexican-American War and the Treaty of Hidalgo. The land acquisition just so happened to coincide with gold being discovered at Sutter's Mill in present-day El Dorado County, a discovery that saw a huge influx of migration the following year, 1849, known as the Great California Gold Rush. And yeah, that's where we get the term 49ers. Just to give you an idea how many people were flocking to California, in the spring of 1848, the state boasted a population of just a little over 150,000 people, most of which were Native Americans. Of the rest, about 6,500 were of Spanish or Mexican descent, leaving just a few hundred non-Native Americans, gringos. Skip ahead not even two years later, and that non-Native white population soared to over 100,000. By the mid-1850s, there were more than 300,000 new arrivals. It wasn't just Americans from back east rushing to California either. By 1852, there were 25,000 immigrants from China alone, not to mention Europeans of all stripes, even filthy, drunken, criminally predisposed Australians. And of course, you had plenty of Mexicans coming up through the southern border ready to try their luck at the gold diggings as well. One of which was today's subject, Joaquin Murrieta. Ah yes, now we can get into the real man, as much as we can, at least with the scant records available. Marietta appears to have been born in Sonora, Mexico in 1830 to parents Joaquin and Rosalia. And if you look at a map of Mexico, Sonora is going to be in the northwest portion, directly south of Arizona. At one point, Mexico's largest state, Sonora would lose about 13,000 square miles following the Treaty of Hidalgo and an additional 29,000 with the Gadsden Purchase. It would also be left largely in economic ruin following the Mexican-American War. Got to imagine Joaquin and his family probably weren't too well off following the conflict. Most average people in Sonora weren't. Once gold was discovered in California, it's no wonder they began flocking north in droves seeking a better life. But Marietta would not make the journey alone. He got married young, while still a teenager, to a girl named Rosa Feliz. And it was with her brothers, Claudio Reyes and Jesus, along with his own brother Jesus, that Joaquin would migrate. This is where I make my obligatory apology for butchering the Spanish language. Got a lot of Hispanic names to pronounce on this episode, and I'm probably going to flub each and every one of them. Despite being born and raised in Texas, and despite knowing a little bit of the lingo, my mouth just doesn't work like it's supposed to. So my apologies in advance. Compromiso. Alright, so, it appears Marietta and company all initially settled in the town of Sonora, California. That right there tells you how many would-be miners were coming up out of Sonora, Mexico alone. They actually formed their own town, which still stands, by the way. Home to nearly 6,000 souls, Sonora, California is about 130 miles west of San Francisco, not too far from Yosemite. 
Looks like upon arrival, Rosa's older brother Claudio took up work for one of the many gringo mine operations in the area, while Joaquin and his bride headed east to Contra Costa County, where he may have worked as a Baccaro or a Mestanero, Mustanger. And I say may because there just isn't a whole lot of hard evidence for a lot of Joaquin's life. As always, do your own research and please feel free to let me know if I get anything wrong. Now, unfortunately, Marietta's brother-in-law, Claudio, would get himself arrested and charged with stealing another man's gold. He got locked up in Stockton, but was able to escape because, well, jails were pretty crappy back in those days. And following this escape, Claudio Feliz would organize his own gang of bandits. First known attack occurred on December 5th, 1850, when they raided the ranch of John Marsh, no relation to Stan, in Contra Costa County. One man, a visitor to the ranch, was actually murdered during this strike. Bastard rode him down, shot him, and then lanced him. A little over a week later, this same bunch struck the ranch of Digby Smith near San Jose. And boy, were they feeling bloody. Their victims were tied up, murdered by having their heads bashed in, and then dumped into the ranch house, which was set on fire. The remains found still smoldering. Moving onward to February of 1851, once again near San Jose, Claudio Feliz and his band of merry murderers attacked the ranch of Anastasio Chaboya. Only this time they weren't so lucky. Chaboya, an old school Californio, wasn't about to let no damn Sonoran cave his head in. Evidently his Baqueros rode for the brand because they repelled Claudio's attack in no time flat, sending he and his men scurrying for the hills. By the way, Californio is a term you'll hear me use a few more times on this episode. Uh, they were descendants of the original Spanish colonists there in California. They had that old money, many of them wielded profound influence, and they owned a lot of land. They would have had very little in common with a poor immigrant like Claudio or Joaquin, other than sharing a common language. We'll talk some more about the Californios coming up in a bit. After that failed raid, the Feliz gang set up shop in the foothills of the Sierras and started robbing lone travelers, anyone who appeared to be carrying more gold than firearms. And more often than not, they left their victims dead. Easier to avoid prosecution that way. Now, I'm not sure if Joaquin participated in any of the criminal activity I just described, but evidently he would join the gang at some point in 1851. And by this time, the bandits had grown pretty vicious. They were killing people left and right and not being too discriminatory as to who their victims were. Make no mistake about it, they would not only target well-to-do Californios or gringo miners, but anyone that they saw as an easy target. Black, brown, white. The poor Chinese especially were targeted due to them often traveling with no weapons as well as not having any formal protection under the law. Pressure began mounting and Joaquin wisely began distancing himself, either by design or just dumb luck. That and he had him a little side piece over in Los Angeles by the name of Anna Benitez. Turns out he was visiting her when his brother-in-law finally met his end. Claudio made two mistakes. Well, three, I guess. Uh, just being a damn murder and thief was his first blunder. He also began targeting more of the well-to-do Californios, and they quickly tired of his antics. And finally, mistake number three, Claudio left one too many witnesses alive. He lost what little support he had among the locals when it came out that he was targeting his fellow Hispanics. A victim was able to escape and name him to authorities, and it weren't too long before he, along with several members of his gang, were cornered and gunned down. What was left of the group, including little brother Reyes Feliz, soon came under the leadership of Joaquin Marietta, who was temporarily busy, quote-unquote, keeping company with Senorita Benitez over in sunny Los Angeles. Once again, I'd like to stress that there's just not much known Joaquin's early actions, especially as far as uh, how much honest work he was doing before he turned to crime. He would be mentioned in newspapers, however, I found many conflicting stories as to which actual newspaper article first mentioned him by his full name. And there were other Joaquins operating at the time. So many, in fact, that their collective group would eventually come to be known as the Five Joaquins. A lot of their exploits sort of got mixed in together. That said, as early as January of 1852, a horse thief by the name of Theodore Vasquez implicated Marietta. Theodore confessed that Joaquin was one of a dozen Sonoran youth who would steal mules and horses from San Jose, sell them in Marysville, and then blow all the proceeds playing Monty. Evidently, young Marietta loved to gamble. A few months following this confession, a posse confronted a band of horse thieves near Willow Springs, California, about 90 miles north of L.A. A gunfight ensued, during which a posse member was shot and killed. A few weeks later, a young man named Marietta was arrested and charged with this murder. Was this our Marietta? Possibly, but we'll probably never know. 
the mystery Mexican was to be summarily dealt with, a.k.a. lynched without any hint of a legal trial, but he escaped before they could string him up. We get all the way to May of 1852 before we're pretty confident in knowing what Murrieta was up to. This was maybe six to eight months after Claudio was killed. By the way, notice how I failed to mention anything concerning Joaquin having his gold mine stolen or his wife raped and murdered. That's because there's no historical basis for any of that, as far as I could find. And as far as I know, Marietta's wife, Rosa, is still alive and well at this point. Was Joaquin the victim of racial injustice prior to 1852? Probably. We'll get to that soon enough. But there is no indication that I could find that there was some dramatic, horrible atrocity that pushed the young man to a life of uh, banditry. Okay, so May of 1852. Joaquin, operating with a gang that included his 15-year-old brother-in-law, Reyes, struck the Corona Ranch in Stanislaus County, making off with about 20 head of horses. The bandits then headed north a couple hundred miles before having the misfortune of being overtaken by a band of Tejon natives under Chief Jose Zapatero. They let Marietta and his group go with their lives, but not before tying them up, relieving them of their stolen horses and clothing. Luckily, the bandits were able to loosen their bindings and hoof it on foot in their damn birthday suits before the pursuing posse made an appearance. By the way, not only did they have a posse after him, looking to get back those stolen horses, but they also had a bounty hunter on their trail by the name of Harry Love. And this guy right here, ooh boy, where to start with Harry Love? Let's just say in addition to having a name straight from a late 1970s porno, dude even had a sweet porn stash along with a Ron Jeremy haircut. Seriously, Google the man. Quick search to turn up one of my favorite Old West photos of all time. You got Harry Love in the center, flanked by two other California Rangers. All three of them appear to be slightly wasted after a night on the town, yet their hair is so perfectly, uh, what's the word? Permed? I mean, your wife wishes she had curls like Harry Love, and especially the man to his direct right. These guys are exactly what you'd expect the California version of the Texas Rangers to look like, with just an extra scoop of fabulous on top. Now, despite appearances, Harry, or Mr. Love, whichever you prefer, was the real deal. Born in Vermont in 1810, Love turned to the high seas as a teenager and eventually found his way to Texas, where he possibly took up with the Texas Rangers. I think him serving with the early Rangers is likely, I just wasn't able to find definitive proof. He did for sure participate in the Mexican-American War, serving with a group of Alabama volunteers in the capacity of a courier and express rider, a job that he evidently excelled at. Following the hostilities, Love would do a bit of exploring along the Rio Grande, during which time he had his fair share of skirmishes with the indigenous. And then, of course, when gold got discovered out west, he headed to California, just like Joaquin Murrieta. Now, Harry wasn't worth a damn as a miner, but he soon cultivated a reputation as a tough man with a gun. Became a deputy sheriff for a bit in Santa Barbara, before turning to a more lucrative career as a manhunter. And like I said, Murrieta and Feliz were able to elude both the posse and Harry Love, but fellow gang member Pedro Gonzalez wouldn't be so fortunate. Love captured the man alive, but he wouldn't stay that way for long. The Los Angeles Star would report the following of the incident. Quote, the prisoner, being on foot, complained of fatigue and made several ineffectual attempts to escape. When about eight miles this side of the river, he complained of thirst and pointing to a ravine near at hand, told his conductor that there was plenty of water a little ways up. Accordingly, Mr. Love dismounted and proceeded with the man till they came to a small clump of bushes. When the prisoner darted forward into them and would have made his escape, Mr. Love's spurs prevented him from giving chase, but the latter, endeavoring to knock him down with his pistol, accidentally discharged it and shot him through the head, killing him instantly. End quote. So there you have it. Bounty hunter Harry Love, air quotes, accidentally shot Gonzalez in the head. And if you believe it was an accident, I think George Strait has some oceanfront property you may be interested in. A lot of people got their heads accidentally ventilated back in them days. We'll talk more about love in a bit, but I definitely pick up a lot of Rooster Cogburn type vibes from the guy. While a very tough and capable man, I'm going to go out on a limb and say he was more interested in collecting bounty than he was in the strict enforcement of the law or any sort of due process. Shortly after the death of Gonzalez, Joaquin and Reyes Feliz may have possibly been involved with the murder of one Joshua Bean, older brother of previous Wild West extravaganza subject, Judge Roy Bean. Please check out my episode on Judge Bean for more of a backstory, if you haven't already, link in the show notes. But the judge's brother Joshua was a pretty colorful guy himself. 
veteran of the Mexican-American War and former major general in the California State Militia, Joshua Bean was the last alcalde and the first U.S. mayor of San Diego, where he was so corrupt that he allegedly sold City Hall to himself. He moved to L.A. in 1851, opened up a saloon called the Headquarters, and took into messing around with women he shouldn't be messing around with, a common defect among the Bean clan. As such, it was an argument over a woman that caused his demise, supposedly. I'll leave it up to you to figure out the truth of the matter. I just didn't want to spend too much time on this one incident. But at least one source claims that Joshua got into a drunken argument with his teenage wife. The young lady, possibly as young as 13, had very recently given birth and as such wasn't interested in indulging Bean with his marital urges. Joshua got verbally abusive, the girl fled with the baby he followed, and they started fighting out in the street. Allegedly, Joaquin Marietta witnessed this and intervened, putting a bullet into Joshua's chest. He'd linger for about 24 hours before finally going under. Is that true? I don't know. Uh, there's another version that has a Scotsman or a Mexican Scotsman named Reed as the one that did beat in for messing with his woman. Whatever happened, the general consensus was there was a woman involved, Bean ended up dead, and there were repercussions. Joshua's brother, the soon-to-become-law west of the Pecos, Roy Bean, joined up with the Los Angeles Rangers, which were just a glorified vigilante committee. They started rounding up suspects, one of which was Murieta's brother-in-law, the 15- or 16-year-old Reyes Feliz. And whether or not he had anything to do with Bean's death, he would pay dearly. He and two other Mexicans were quickly found guilty and strung up. Their days of playing Monty in Los Angeles forever over. This was November of 1852. Unbeknownst to Joaquin Marietta, he'd only have another eight months to live his own self. And in those eight months, he would embark on one hell of a bloody crime spree, ultimately sealing his own fate. Now, I won't sit here and pretend like I know every single crime committed by Marietta and his gang, and there's certainly no way to verify the ones I'm about to mention. But to the best of my knowledge, here's a rundown of the events leading up to Joaquin's untimely demise. December of 1852. The miners and merchants of San Andreas, California were enjoying some holiday festivities when Marietta and his band snuck in under the cover of a hailstorm, robbing several businesses and making off with a ton of loot and provisions. A few days later, and a few miles away, a lone traveler named Edward Cameron was shot to death by some Mexican bandits. Obviously no way of proving this was the same bunch that robbed the town of San Andreas, but it's kind of a where there's smoke, there's a fire type situation. This is all up in Calaveras County, by the way. A guy named Henry Angel arrived in the area in 1849 and set up a trading post known as Angel's Camp, about 12 miles southeast of San Andreas and 16 miles northwest of Sonora, where Joaquin first settled when he arrived in California. There was also another settlement nearby called Yaqui Camp, I believe predominantly Hispanic, where the present-day town of Calaveritas is located. These various hamlets, especially Yaqui Camp, were frequented by Marietta, and you'll hear all these names again moving forward. Alright, so following Edward Cameron's murder, Joaquin and his band either started or continued targeting the local Chinese laborers. As I previously touched on, the Chinese often went unarmed, and as such, they were easy pickings. And unfortunately, since they were Chinese, nobody else really cared whether or not they got robbed. It wasn't until Marietta started stealing horses from the white miners that people started paying attention. And it wasn't long before a sheriff from San Andreas, Charles Ellis, would be called in to deal with the problem. He and his posse tracked the bandits down and exchanged gunfire, but nobody on either side was hit, so they called it a day. I mean, come on. This is California. What do you expect? They probably had to go grab some acai bowls and slather themselves down with CBD oil. To be fair, Sheriff Ellis would pursue the bandits again when it was reported that Joaquin murdered a white man over in Yaqui Camp. The lawman and his deputies this time were successful in catching one of Marietta's associates, a guy by the name of Big Bill, and promptly hung him by the neck till he was dead, dead, dead. Still on the hunt, they made their way to Angel's Camp, where they captured and hung another bandit, this one implicating Joaquin as the gang's leader before he swung. And since Yaqui Camp was said to be one of Joaquin's main hideouts, the posse descended upon the settlement, burning it to the ground. Meanwhile, nearby Double Springs, the Calaveras County seat, passed an ordinance forcing all foreigners, or anybody who wasn't white, into exile. Now, I'm not making that anyone who wasn't white distinction to prove my wokeness or anything. There were literally laws on the books in California at this time that made special provisions not to target foreigners from European countries. More on that later. At this point, it was just pure vigilante justice. 
With the area Hispanic and Chinese populations retreating to Stockton, the sheriff and his posse continued to track down and hang any Mexicans they thought were associated with Joaquin Marietta. While I'm sure they did indeed get their hands on some of the criminal element, I can't help but wonder if any innocent people got the noose at this time as well. And that mob justice is truly a frightening thing. Believe it or not, that might be my main takeaway from all the shit I've learned doing this podcast. It's a theme central to the Old West, vigilante justice. And I get it. Oftentimes there was no formal law. Citizens, regular people, farmers, ranchers, miners. They had to group together and sometimes take the law into their own hands. That's to be expected. I mean, if we nowadays experience some sort of breakdown of society, we'd probably do the same things to protect ourselves and our family. If not, you'll have chaos and you'll continue to be victimized by two-legged wolves. The problem occurs when the mob becomes the very thing they're supposed to be protecting against, and boy, oh boy, does that tend to happen. I mean, when that crowd smells blood, it's a hard thing to stop. Alright, I'm getting sidetracked. Despite being hunted, Joaquin and his bandits robbed several more Chinese travelers in early February of 1853. And then a few days later, they robbed even more Chinese, murdering three of them along with an unnamed American. Meanwhile, a deputy sheriff local there to Calaveras County raised a posse of his own. This dude's name was Charles A. Clark, with an E, also a former Texas Ranger and a veteran of the Battle of San Jacinto. He was able to get close enough to the bandits to witness them robbing even more Chinese miners and even exchange some ineffectual gunfire with them, but that's about it. While unsuccessful in stopping Joaquin, Clark did at least make good on heaping on enough additional pressure caused Marietta to leave the area. The bandit was next seen gambling in Tolomne, I think I'm pronouncing that probably wrong, Tolomne County, about 40 miles to the east, where he got so talkative that his boys had to escort him from the Monty table, fearing he'd share too much information. Think maybe some liquid libations were at play there. After a brief visit to Los Angeles, Marietta passed the San Fernando Valley, where he stole a small herd of horses from General Don Andres Pico. A ballsy move indeed. If you're not familiar with Pico, he's another Californio who, in addition to being the brother of the former governor of Alta, California, was the commander of the California Lancers during the Mexican-American War. If you subscribe to my Patreon and you've heard my series on Kit Carson, I cover the Battle of San Pasqual. Well, Don Pico was there. He was the one leading the forces that were putting up such a fierce fight against Kit and Fremont. Needless to say, this wasn't the type of man you wanted to piss off. And I kind of think maybe Joaquin didn't realize who he was stealing from. One of Pico's Baqueros paid Marietta a visit and let him know he was treading on thin ice and bowing to reason, Joaquin smartly returned the majority of the stolen horses, around 40 of them, only keeping a handful that he said he and his men absolutely needed. Quick side note, Pico's cousin was another notorious California bandit active at the time, Solomon Pico. Alright, so I think it's safe to say that the citizens of California were over Joaquin and Marietta by this point. On May 11, 1853, the governor called for the creation of the California Rangers, a special unit whose only mission in life was to rein in the so-called Five Joaquins. Basically, Joaquin Marietta and a few other guys he ran with, some of whom were also named Joaquin or just went by Joaquin. Very confusing when I was looking into it. Uh, there were two brothers, supposedly cousins of Marietta's, both nicknamed Ocho Moreno. One was actually named Joaquin, but the other kind of went by Joaquin on occasion. Another member of the five Joaquins was Joaquin Botella. He, like Marietta, was uh, from Sonora. Then you had Joaquin Carrillo, who supposedly was Marietta's stepbrother. I don't know. Makes me wonder if Joaquin just wasn't one popular-ass name back in the day. I mean, all these guys were young in their early 20s. Kind of had me thinking what a band of similar young outlaws be named if they were around nowadays. The five Camdens. You know, the five Bradens. Hey, be careful out there. The five Coltons are on the loose. Anyway, evidently these various Joaquins, along with Marietta, were all listed by name in the legislative act that created the California Rangers. And who better to catch them than the man, the myth, old porn stash himself, Captain Harry Love. Yeah, that's right, Captain. Love was placed in charge of these newly formed Rangers, and he promptly filled their ranks with a motley crew of 20 hardened men. Alright, so I found two rosters, uh, one compiled by Henry Rollin Ridge, and the other by a man named William James Howard, who was actually a member and accompanied Captain Love's pursuit of Marietta. I will leave the link to these rosters in the show notes so you can compare the two, maybe look for a few familiar names. I do lean on trusting Howard's list more, 
but I've read his eyewitness accounts, and he seems to be full of shit about half the time himself, so who knows. Nevertheless, I will share some of his observations. Of the Rangers, Howard said that they, quote, had the law in their hands and could hang, burn, or crucify as they pleased. Under the circumstances, it was necessary to have men with courage and good judgment. They were all dead shots with either rifle or revolver, and not one of them knew the meaning of the word fear. Naturally, all were familiar with the hardships of border life, which implied a great deal in view of the measures that had to be adopted to put a stop to the reign of terror, then in full force. End quote. He also left us with the following tantalizing details as to what the men carried, saying, quote, These old pioneers did not bother much with cooking utensils. A tin cup, a tin plate, Bowie knife, sugar spoons, individual coffee can represented a complete outfit. Whenever they obtained meat, it was cooked over the fire on forked sticks, and bread was baked in the same way, while potatoes were roasted in the hot ashes. All frontiersmen understood this phase of the situation and can appreciate the importance of packing as little weight as possible in a manhunt of this character. The firearms consisted of old-fashioned muzzle-loading guns of every variety, and each man carried a Colt's Navy six-shooter. The Rangers were operating in a comparatively arid region, and as activities began in midsummer, the above equipment was considered adequate for all practical purposes. End quote. So there you have it. That's the kind of stuff right there that fascinates me. Everyday things are the tools of the trade that such men carried. Good thing they were traveling light too, since they'd be on the hunt for probably longer than they expected. Matter of fact, for the first couple of months, they were pretty much drawing blanks. Evidently, Joaquin smelled trouble in the air and he and his bunch went to hole. Captain Harry Love was determined, however, and he soon caught him a break. Someone tipped him off as to the whereabouts of Joaquin's remaining brother-in-law, Jesus Feliz. Young Jesus was located, arrested, and promised that if he'd spill the beans on Marietta's location, they'd let him go. And he agreed. Now, if you're of the geographical bent, I believe at this point the Rangers weren't too far from San Juan Bautista. Upon apprehending Senor Feliz, Harry and the boys rode south for the Salinas Valley. This was just a ruse, however, as Harry Love didn't get to be a captain by being a dummy. He was hoping if anybody was watching, they'd assume he was going in the wrong direction. Later that night, the Rangers backtracked and headed southeast, first to the San Benito Valley and then through the Diablo Range, almost kind of parallel and to the west of present-day Highway 5. Finally, they came upon their destination, the Arroyo de Cantua, or the Cantua Canyon a.k.a. the super-secret hideout of Joaquin Marietta, very near where the town of Coalingua now stands. And almost immediately, a huge herd of several hundred horses came into view, many of which were likely stolen by Marietta and the boys, and many that were just actually wild, all mixed in together and being looked after by a force of about 80 men. These were Mestineros, that particular breed of Bacaro that specialized in catching and breaking wild mustangs. Now, they were just working boys, but you better believe they knew where Joaquin was. Harry Love pulled the rangers back for a couple of days just to observe, and it wasn't long before the Mestineros broke camp. Traveling at night and into the early morning, Captain Love soon located another small camp to the south of Pinocha Pass. Yeah, Pinocha Pass. If you're familiar with the Spanish language, you probably know the meaning of Pinocha. Growing up in Texas, you're going to learn that particular word probably around the age of seven or eight. No matter your native tongue. And if you don't know what it means, well, let's just say I found it amusing that old porn stash Harry Love was about to penetrate Pinocha Pass. Alright, so, uh, yeah, that small camp that Ranger Love located was indeed Joaquin's camp, and he and the boys almost made it too easy for the lawmen. Per usual, there are a few versions as to what happened. The Rangers probably took a couple of lookouts into custody, as is claimed in one account. That's also consistent with other reports that have the Rangers arresting a few of the bandits, and it helps explain why they were able to come upon Joaquin and the remaining outlaws unaware. I'm also not sure how many bandits there were total, but it looks like anywhere between just six to eight. Now, despite the varying accounts, they all seem to agree that Joaquin was able to escape the initial attack, possibly yelling out every man for himself when doing so. While attempting to race his pony across a creek, Rangers John White and Bill Henderson both fired, hitting Marietta in the small of his back and knocking him out of the saddle. Down but not out, the bandit was able to rise and take off on foot, just not fast enough. Ranger Henderson fired again, this time striking Joaquin in the chest. Staring up at his killers, Marietta's last words were, No tiren mas, estoy muerta. Stop shooting, I'm already dead. 
The other version of Joaquin's final moments has only Ranger John White pursuing him, with Marietta hanging off the side of his horse, Comanche style. White closed the distance and was able to get off around, striking Joaquin in the hand that he was using to hold on to the horse's mane. Upon spilling to the ground, the wounded bandit held up his hand and surrendered. And wouldn't you know it, just as Ranger White exclaimed, I arrest you, some of the other boys just rode up and riddled Joaquin with bullets. As far as the other bandits go, once again, there are differing accounts. Uh, One source claimed three total were killed. Another says four killed and two captured. Of those captured, one drowned while trying to escape, and one later confessed to his crimes and was then strung up. And as far as I can tell, no California Rangers were killed, although Harry Love is said to have gotten his face grazed by a bullet. Of the dead, I only know of two for a fact. Joaquin Murrieta and his trusted lieutenant, Three Finger Jack. Now, Mr. Three Fingers, his actual name was Manuel Garcia, but he did come upon his nickname Honest, seeing as how he only had three fingers on one hand. A hand that was quickly severed and kept as proof. You see, both he and Joaquin had a price on their heads, and the Rangers had to have some way of demonstrating that they got their men. So not only did they remove Three Fingers' telltale hand, but his head as well, and the head of Joaquin Marietta. Evidently, Garcia had a big gaping bullet wound in his skull, causing the rot to set in quickly. So they simply buried it somewhere near Fort Miller in present-day Fresno County. Good thing they had that hand, I guess. Joaquin's head, however, would be carefully placed in a jug of brandy for preservation, but no word as to what happened to the rest of his body. The head, originally used simply as proof that Joaquin was dead in order to collect the reward, was then taken on tour with Captain Love where he charged the public a buck per person to view it. The trophy eventually found its way to San Francisco where it was either destroyed or lost during the Great Earthquake of 1906. Now, if you do a Google search, you will find a picture of a head in a jar, supposedly Joaquin's. But I don't think it's a reliable photo. It looks too much like a movie prop. If it is real and you can tell me more about why you believe this is actually Joaquin's severed head, please email me, josh at wildwestextra.com. Now, before we go any further, there are stories that Joaquin Murrieta was not really killed that day, and that Captain Love simply cut the head off a random Mexican bandit or vaquero and claimed it was Joaquin. I suppose that's possible, but I doubt it. The head was paraded throughout various mining camps and towns where Joaquin was known. Furthermore, Don Pico, when retrieving more of his stolen horses, also positively ID'd it. All total, Captain Love was able to collect 17 affidavits of people who knew Joaquin, including a priest, and saying that the head did indeed belong to the bandit. And in the end, Harry Love got his reward. $6,000 was doled out by the state to he and his rangers. That's $227,763 in today's money, or two full tanks of unleaded gasoline. Now, I'm pretty sure Love got the biggest cut, but assuming that money was evenly spread out, you're looking at, adjusting for inflation, almost $11,000 per man. Not a bad payday, but considering it took them three months and it entailed putting themselves at considerable risk, I don't know, what do you think? I suppose the ultimate removal of a deadly menace who, had he lived, would have almost certainly killed more innocent people, was likely uh, worth the sacrifice. Even the Chinese community, which Marietta mercilessly targeted, were said to have raised some money on behalf of Harry Love to show their gratitude. Whether that's actually true or not, no, that's a different story. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Everything is alleged when it comes to this episode. Even that ranger I previously mentioned, William J. Howard, his personal recollections are just riddled with fantasy. He's the one that claimed Marietta surrendered and was accidentally gunned down by the other rangers. He also claimed that one of the prisoners committed suicide by, quote, plunging under the water and holding to the ground beneath, thus defying the efforts of the rangers to save him. And the other prisoner was placed in a jail, but whoops, don't you know he somehow ended up found hung to death the next morning. Hate it when that happens. Look, maybe these two banditos who were captured deserve to die, but if you can't read between the lines here and see that Mr. Howard is being a little less than honest, once again, George Strait and me got some property to sell you. California Rangers, their job now done, were disbanded. And Captain Harry Love used his proceeds to buy a nice piece of land in Santa Cruz County. He even got married to a widow woman named Mary Bennett. Unfortunately, the two just could not get along. They split up several times over the next decade until finally Mary moved out for good and sued Love for divorce. A suit she lost because she was a woman in the 19th century. Or maybe she was just a cunt. I don't know. 
Now, Love had him a run of bad luck. There was a fire at his place, a couple of floods. Believe it or not, he had an issue with squatters. All of this coupled with a pretty serious drinking problem caused him to lose his land. His wife initially felt bad for him and allowed him to move into a tiny home on her property. Not the main house, however. Dude was not allowed there. But as time grew on, Mrs. Love grew very scared of Harry, and she even hired a bodyguard to protect her. A bodyguard who, I'm going to assume, was a well-built younger man. As you can imagine, Harry didn't much appreciate this. Damn it. And one day he decided to confront this young stud of a man, rippling with muscles, who was hired to protect his dear wife. When the bodyguard, whose name I could not determine, so we're going to go with Chad, when Chad and Mrs. Love arrived home one day, they found Harry lounging on the ground in front of the main house where he absolutely was not allowed. Upon seeing this, Chad, with his young six-pack slightly covered with a dewy sweat, non-saggy balls, and perfectly spaced facial features, wasted no time in attempting to shush Harry away. Go on, get! But Harry Love had had enough. You can only push a man so far, right? Especially a once-celebrated ranger. As with everything else in this damn episode, there are different versions. One has Love's pistol accidentally going off as the two men began wrestling, and him shooting himself in the armpit. The other has Harry armed with a shotgun, as he and the bodyguard both up and up fire each other at the same time. The young man received a superficial birdshot wound to the face, and Harry received a bullet to the right arm above the elbow. Wherever the truth lies, we know Harry Love was wounded in one of his arms. This much is a fact. And it wasn't necessarily a fatal wound, but for whatever reason the arm would have to come off. I guess it was beyond fixing and amputation was called for. Regrettably, the sawbones that performed the operation miscalculated the amount of chloroform he needed to put Harry under. The wounded California ranger went to sleep alright, and he never woke up. This occurred in Santa Clara, California on June 30th, 1868. And Harry Love was in his late 50s at the time of his death. Alright, so I don't know about you, but I don't feel quite satisfied. There's just so much buildup over Joaquin Murrieta, you know, so much legend, so many ballads and stories. Are you telling me he was nothing more than a common bandit? Is there no truth at all behind that grand revenge story? Well, I found an excellent essay by the great John Bosenecker titled California Bandidos, Social Bandits or Sociopaths, that sheds some much-needed light on the subject. It also gives a great context to the times and culture Joaquin was part of. And if you're not sure about the term social bandit, we can just go with Robin Hood. Okay, the so-called noble robber, the rebel, the outlaws who were victims of injustice and were forced into a life of banditry as a way to right various wrongs. All right, so Mr. Bosnecker writes the following, quote, The reasons for Hispanic peasant banditry are complex and seem to be closely tied to the causes of violent crime on the frontier. Crime and violence were commonplace in California during the 1850s. Homicide rates were much higher than those of today. Gold rush society was unsettled. Hordes of ambitious young men flocked to California, leaving behind their families, and most significantly, their mothers, sisters, wives, and sweethearts. The simple presence of women in a community exerts a strong, settling influence upon antisocial male behavior. This scarcity of women is perhaps the single most important root cause of violent crime on the western frontier. The development of Colt's revolving pistol, a huge improvement over the old single-shot weapons, made it possible for every man to carry six-fold firepower in his holster. The rough ethic of that era, which required a man to withstand insults with deadly force and to never back down from a fight, coupled with the ready availability of bowie knives, six-shooters, and liquor, was a recipe for carnage. With human life so cheap, it is little wonder that some men held little regard for property rights. Incidents of claim jumping, sluice robbing, highway robbery, and stock theft were common during the gold rush. Many young men who came to the mining frontier were by nature adventuresome and perhaps somewhat reckless. Most were consumed by gold fever, if not greed, and most did not strike it rich. The San Quentin prison registers in the California State Archives demonstrate that men of many races and nationalities turned to crime after 1850. At or near the bottom of the social heap were the poorest of the Hispanics. Bad blood between American and Mexican had been stirred up in the Mexican-American War and many Anglos still looked upon Hispanics as the enemy. Racism, fueled by ignorance and religious bigotry, was the order of the day. Many Hispanics were driven from the mines, savaged by callous Anglos, and occasionally flogged and hanged without just cause by vigilantes. Denied a means by which to earn a living, it is not surprising that numerous Hispanics turned to robbery and stock theft. 
Although the plight of these Hispanics certainly deserves sympathy and understanding, the view that Joaquin Marietta, Salomon Pico, and Tiburcio Vasquez were social bandits or revolutionaries does not withstand close scrutiny. Each of them appears to have had a magnetic personality and a strong leadership qualities which attracted followers and supporters. Marietta, Pico, and Vasquez were not sociopaths. Undoubtedly, they had grievances against Anglo society. But the facts surrounding the careers of these three bandits demonstrate that they were more motivated by hopes of plunder and profit than by any wish to aid their fellow man. There is abundant evidence that they were opportunistic thieves who generally preyed upon innocent victims, sometimes including fellow Hispanics. End quote. Sorry, I know that was long. I actually suggest reading the entire article. I'll link to it in the show notes. Mr. Bosnecker does a great job of dismantling the myth of the social bandit. Very, very good read. As are any of his books you may get your hands on. And basically, he's just hammering home what you've already likely picked up for your own listening to this episode. But I will expand further on some of the injustices that Hispanics and other minorities had to deal with there in California during this time, if you'll indulge me. There was actually something called the Foreign Miners Tax Act that basically imposed a fine on any non-U.S. citizen who wanted to pan for gold. $20 a month, which is about $750 in today's money. Now, this wouldn't affect Hispanics living in California before the Treaty of Hidalgo, but immigrants like Joaquin Murrieta or the many Asians who came looking for a better life were affected. And it was the Chinese, believe it or not, who were the main target of the Foreign Miners Act. As the amount of available gold began to shrink, tensions rose and miners began fighting over available real estate. As such, violence against foreigners, in this case the term foreigner indicates anyone who wasn't white, began to rise. Just like Mr. Bosnecker wrote, there were beatings, rapes, and even murders. And vigilante justice, or so-called justice, ran rampant. Just to give you an idea of the mentality of that time against various races, the man who passed the foreign miners tax, then California Governor Peter Burnett, also at one point called for all blacks to leave the state or face a public flogging. And he made an exemption in the Foreign Miners Act waiving the fine for white foreigners. So if you were from Ireland or Scotland or France or, God forbid, Germany, you were in the clear. You're our type of foreigner. Got too much melanin in your skin? Well, you're shit out of luck. And, of course, let's not forget California's insanely named Greaser Act, whose official purpose was to, quote, punish vagrants, vagabonds, and dangerous and suspicious persons. But I don't guess I gotta tell you what group an anti-vagrancy law named the Greaser Act was targeting. Like it or not, California was at this point in history ruled by Anglo-Americans. They, the elite, and those gullible enough to believe that them in power actually cared for their interest, only tolerated people that looked and talked differently than them for a few reasons. Cheap labor, a servant class, and a piece of exotic strange on occasion. I know, I know, there's a certain segment of our population here in the U.S. that despises hearing about these inconvenient facts. As if anything that doesn't portray America as a 100% shining beacon of equality, chosen by a Christian God to let freedom ring, is somehow akin to blasphemy. The United States of America is the greatest country on the face of this earth. No other place I'd rather live. Hell, I'd get thrown in jail for saying some of this shit in other countries. We've come very far in the past century and a half, and people are still flocking here in droves, looking to improve their lives. This is a land of opportunity and freedom, for the most part. At the same time, there's also been great injustices committed against other races by those in power, and it just so happens the ones in power here have historically been white. These two truths are not mutually exclusive. You already know this, I know. The only reason I bring it up is because anytime I say anything remotely in this vein, I'll invariably receive a few emails with people eager to point out other atrocities committed by other races as if I'm somehow blaming them. But Josh, what about all the bad stuff the Mexicans did? What about the Spanish indentured servants? What about blah, 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 blah? We're talking about California in the 1850s. Maybe if I do an episode on Spanish colonialism, then I'll talk shit about them too. Matter of fact, I'm positive I will. This isn't a white versus brown versus black thing. It's a human being versus human being thing, and we humans are historically, without a doubt, some vicious fuckers. All that said, we have no idea whether or not Joaquin Marietta was ever specifically targeted in such a manner. I mean, you can assume he was subjected to some form of discrimination, and if by some miracle he wasn't, then he knew people who were. He and his fellow immigrants were second-hand citizens, and, as an economically marginalized people, some of them turned to banditry. 
And it wasn't just Mexicans or Hispanics either. Not in the Old West. Replace Joaquin Marietta with Jesse James or Rube Burrow or Sam Bass, and the legends and their mythical motivations are much the same. I mean, hell, switch out white California miners with northern carpetbaggers and Kansas redlegs, and you pretty much got the plot to the outlaw Josie Wells. The truth is, however, both Jesse James and Joaquin Marietta targeted innocent people. And they killed innocent people. And remember, Marietta wasn't shy about who he robbed. Many of his victims were Hispanic, and a whole bunch of them were Asians. Nobody has to bend their imagination to think there would be plenty of motivation for someone like Joaquin Marietta or any other persecuted group, to go on some sort of noble vengeance quest. That said, in this particular case, there's just no proof as far as Marietta is concerned. The stories of Joaquin being some sort of grand avenger, dealing justice to the men who killed his wife and brother, targeting the rich Anglo miners and protecting the poor Mexican laborers, those, in lieu of any semblance of historical evidence, are just stories. Whereas what we know about Marietta, based on newspaper articles and eyewitness accounts, along with the testimony of his own compadres, is that he was an equal opportunity bandit who stole from the weak, whether they be white, brown, yellow, or whatever shade you want to toss in. And if they were lucky, maybe they'd escape with their lives. Look, I'm fully cognizant of the idea that history is written by the victors. Is it possible that the historians got everything wrong and Joaquin was indeed some sort of hero? Yeah, I suppose. But you're gonna have to provide me some sort of proof. I'll be the first to admit that history is complicated and oftentimes you gotta sift through a lot of bullshit to find the truth. And that was especially the case here with Joaquin Marietta and I'm still not sure we've gotten to the whole truth. At the end of the day, the evidence we're forced to rely on is pretty flawed. And let's face it, I'm no historian. All I try to do is look at different sources and see what adds up. The folk hero aspect of Marietta was created after his death by many various authors and poets, by TV shows and movies, and by our own collective imaginations and our very American desire to see wrongs righted and injustices avenged. The Hispanic population of California endured many atrocities at the hands of Anglo-Americans. That is true. Joaquin Marietta, however, was simply a criminal with no righteous ulterior motive. But that's the way it goes. Like I touched on earlier, many an outlaw of the Old West, of all ethnicities, were considered to be righteous. You know, virtuous, misunderstood, victims. For the most part, they were just charismatic criminals, taking the easy way out. Hell, same goes for the lawmen. They were tough, and when needed, they could get mean, real mean. But were they upright paradigms of righteousness? Absolutely not. Mostly, they were simply criminals, too. Josh at WildWestExtra.com, if you got something you'd like to share with me about Joaquin Marietta, anything I didn't get to, and anything I got wrong, please email me. Okay, so now that I've dashed any hopes of Joaquin Marietta being some sort of hero, at least we can still say he was the inspiration behind Zorro, right? Eh, maybe. According to the Santa Barbara Historical Museum, Zorro creator Johnston McCauley was inspired by the exploits of bandits in California in the 1850s. Most notably, Solomon Pico, whose exploits pretty much mirror those of Marietta's. Quote, The story of Solomon Pico soon passed into folklore, a man taking vengeance on those who wronged him, a guerrilla warrior fighting to save his homeland from an unscrupulous invader. It's likely Pico was protected from capture to a certain extent due to the growing tensions between the Californios and the American authorities. McCulley melded Pico's story and additional outlaw tales to create the character of Zorro. In deference to his 20th century American readers, he placed Zorro in Spanish California battling corrupt Spanish authorities rather than American. Macaulay's stories of a highly romanticized pastoral Spanish California actually have their roots in a troubled transitional era of California history. End quote. And then there are several sources that claim Zorro wasn't even based on a Mexican at all, but an Irish Catholic named William Lamport. Born in the year 1611 and quite the adventurer, Lamport eventually found his way to Mexico where he attempted to lead local Native American and blacks in a revolt against their tyrannical overseers. He was unsuccessful and ultimately tried during the Inquisition and sentenced to be burned at the stake. But he chose to take his own life before they could make it official. Looks like Zorro's just a mix of many different people. Most of them, if real, led lives that were highly fictionalized after their deaths. As far as Marietta being the inspiration behind Batman, I'm not seeing any links other than maybe Zorro 
inspired Batman, and both Zorro and Batman were wealthy aristocrats with double identities, both of them committing their heroic deeds in secret. I don't know, man. If you want to continue to say Zorro was based on Joaquin Marietta as your go-to icebreaker at parties, far be it for me to stop you. Now with that out of the way, let's talk about the gold. I want to know where the gold at. Surely it wasn't all blown on fast women and Monty. And don't call me Shirley. Legend has it that Joaquin left a bit of treasure out there in the remote reaches of California. On one occasion, with a wagon full of ill-gotten gold, the outlaws were ambushed by a war party near Old Carrizo Stage Station, some 100 miles east of San Diego. To avoid losing their treasure to the hostiles, they cashed it under a rock ledge, hoping to return, but of course, Harry Love saw to that. Another story goes that Marietta buried some treasure near Hatcher Pass in Shasta County, California. And yet another, worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, is supposedly buried near Susanville, California, off Highway 36. Now some of these locations, such as that old Carrizo stage station, look pretty remote. Might need a four-wheel drive and good supply of water and extra gasoline if you head that way. Turns out, though, you might not have to go any further than Los Angeles. You see, Hollywood wasn't always Hollywood. Before being purchased by a developer in the 1880s, it was ranch land. Ranch land that contained a hill in which Murrieta was rumored to have buried quite a bit of gold. And the land where the hill stood was bought by the Sisters of the Immaculate Heart in the early 1900s in order to build a school, but they eventually sold it to the American Film Institute. And many believe that the treasure is still buried there, deep in the ground under the American Film Institute at 2021 Northwestern Avenue, a mere three miles from the Hollywood sign. I don't know about all that. I think you can spend your whole life searching for Joaquin's gold and end up broke. The real treasure mine lies there in the movies. And if they made a movie on Joaquin Marietta, even if they went with the legend, they could cash in. Think about it. Quentin Tarantino directs it. We cast John Leguizamo as Joaquin. Samuel L. Jackson as Harry Love. Toss in Danny Trejo and Selma Hayek's boobs and you got yourself a box office hit. Maybe even hire Danny McBride as a narrator. You're welcome, Hollywood. One last thing on Marietta. Every summer in California's San Joaquin Valley for the last 40 or so years, there's been something called the Joaquin Marietta Ride. You can check out some videos on YouTube. Uh, I don't know how many people participate, but it looks like hundreds. Mostly all Hispanic. They're all on horseback. Many of the men in sombreros. A few of the women in traditional flowing dresses. And they ride something like 60 miles over the course of a couple of days. Looks like a lot of fun. Anyway, this trail ride was originally formed to draw attention to the plight of farm workers there in the valley, being forced from their homes or made to work in poor conditions. To them, the legend of Joaquin Marietta is an inspiration. He's a hero that they look to. And I'm not trying to take away anything from that with this episode. The trail ride looks badass, and I hope people continue to participate in it, and I hope they continue to fight for things that they hold dear. As one organizer put it, Quote, it's about community. Good for them. Lord knows here in Texas we've got an event or two or a school or a dozen named after some not-so-savory characters whose reality and morality doesn't exactly live up to the hype. And that's about all I've got on Joaquin Marietta. There's some pretty good music out there dedicated to the man if you're interested. Listener Antonio shared his favorite with me, a little ditty titled Joaquin Marietta by Los Alegres de Tehran. Definitely not pronouncing that right. It's a straight up old school Norteño. Link in the show notes. I can't understand a word he's singing, but damn it, it sounds good. A couple more I enjoyed. Uh, one was called The Bandit Joaquin by Dave Stamey. Another, probably my favorite, called Joaquin Marietta by the Sons of the San Joaquin. Link in the show notes to all of these. Shout out to William Downs. Thanks for listening, buddy. Big shout out to Billy A, who just got out of the Air Force after eight years. Thank you for your service. Best of luck going forward. Don't catch the monkeypox. Big thank you to all the cool cats over on Patreon. Your continued support both humbles and astonishes me and keeps me motivated. Likewise to those of you who are kind enough to contribute via Buy Me a Coffee. JB, Wazoo, Dathang, Clay, and Gary. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Shout out to Robert Mosher, Plymouth Duster, Josh T, W, and all the rest of my friends over at YouTube. If you like what you hear, please share this episode far and wide. Spread the word. Head on over to my website, wildwestextra.com, and hit that contact button or email me direct at josh at wildwestextra.com with anything on your mind. 
While you're there, click the link at the top that says books. You can find all sorts of fiction and nonfiction books mentioned on this here podcast for sale, all in one convenient place. If you're looking for something to read, maybe a few late Father's Day gifts, this is your one-stop shop. These are Amazon affiliate links, so I do get a tiny cut of the proceeds at no extra cost to you. Last episode, I said I was going to start sharing something unrelated to the Old West that will hopefully bring a smile to your face. Continuing with that, I'd love to recommend a documentary on HBO that I watched recently, George Carlin's American Dream. I know the guy can get a little dark at times, but man, I found it inspiring. So if you're looking for some creative rocket fuel or you're just a big fan of free speech, give it a watch. Hopefully you'll enjoy some of his comedy while doing so. That's it for this week. Catch you in 14 days. Till then, try not to be mean. Try not to rob or murder any Chinese people. And please, whatever you do, don't name your children Harry Love. Adios. Adios.